Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. We continue with our 14th podcast on the second half of American history. In the 13th podcast, I introduced you, perhaps in ways that the average listener might not have been aware of, into the intricacies of the American presidency, perhaps dispelling some of the myths that their presidents are all-empowering and can get anything done by a simple wave of their hand, as well as perhaps replacing that myth with the reality of how difficult that job truly is. We also stressed the roles of the various first ladies through American history. Also took a look at the American people's house called the White House. But then I ended with, excuse me, a brief overview of what that object that we commonly know of as Air Force One, what that really was, what it could do and what it couldn't do, and ended with when the president gets off the plane, when he gets into his 16,000-pound Cadillac called The Beast, the presidential limousine. I'm going to end with a brief overview, as well as, of course, beyond belated and needed thanks to America's Secret Service. Please know, as explained during the podcast on the end of the American Civil War, a vast majority of the efforts of America's Secret Service really is going after counterfeiters. And in this 14th podcast, now we're going to look further into the Secret Service, as well as, of course, doing a brief overview of Congress and the American bureaucracy. Excuse me. So from there, when the Secret Service was formed in terms of the outline of its function by our number 16 president, Abraham Lincoln. It was there when Lincoln, recognizing that 50% of America's currency was counterfeit, and now there would be this influx of Confederate currency coming north of the former Mason-Dixon line, that here he recognized the need for a government agency that was not private, that would be responsible to the government, and in this case, the Secretary of the Treasury, that would be responsible for going after counterfeiters. A small contingent of the Secret Service force, however, might need additional training and would definitely need to be available for the rare opportunities when the President of the United States leaves the White House compound or the Washington, D.C. proper and feels the need for some personal protection. This is the reason why the Secret Service, the boss, the head of the Secret Service, was never the president of the United States. The president is just one of their charges or areas of responsibility, whereas they also protect, as we know, the first spouse, the first family, former presidents and their families. 
dignitaries coming in from out of state, especially those that have a lot of animosity within the United States. The list of individuals that they have to protect is almost endless. So for this reason, the Secret Service has evolved, obviously, more and more as the decades moved on. But the group that is responsible for protecting the president, they now are specifically set apart from the Secret Service, not for better or for worse, just different. They, their charge is different. They're not going after counterfeiters. This is the reason, again, they're the top dog, the authority of the Secret Service was the Secretary of the Treasury. It never was the State Department or the Department of Defense. Only in 2005, with President George W. Bush's creation of a new cabinet position called Homeland Security, that is when the Secret Service then had a new quote-unquote head. Even though there is a director of the CI, the, the Secret Service, who is the top dog of all agents, that person's line of authority is then Secretary of Homeland Security, the first one, as we know, being Tom Ridge, appointed and confirmed by the Senate back in 2005. So please know that the Secret Service of those agents that are trained to protect the President of the United States, we see them anytime we see the President outside of the White House compound. I've had the opportunity to see the President of the United States a couple of times, one of the I uh, actually spoke with personally and saw the agents around. It's not that far different than the way some, but not all, Hollywood portrayal of the Secret Service really looks like. But please note, when the president is in the limousine, when he's walking down the street in a parade, and when he's getting out of the limousine going to a a building or a convention center, and we see that famous box around him. It's not not saying, of course, that it can't get to their head. But the whole idea is that really, ladies and gentlemen, they're not listening to what the president's saying. They're not really paying attention to what the president's even doing. Their eyes are out around looking for potential threats against the person they're responsible for protecting. This is the reason why, by and large, not saying there's not exceptions to the rule, but by and large, the presidents do not look at the Secret Service, and they shouldn't, as personal aides, as couriers. They are not going to take the president's golf clubs on the golf course. They are not going to carry a bag of items that was just purchased by the first lady or the first children. It's not going to happen. They need to have their arms and their ability to respond to a danger at a moment's notice. While, yes, they can look as though the first family has almost royalty status because of that high level of protection around the president of the United States, please know, and as I've had students tell me, that when I share them with this, that not only is it humbling, some say it actually makes their skin tingle, when they think about it. But if, ladies and gentlemen, if you think about when a person receives Secret Service protection, it's not just presidents, even presidential candidates receive protection. But in the end, one candidate wins the election and that person receives Secret Service protection, whereas the opponent that lost the election goes right back into mainstream uh, John and Jane Q public. Why? Because what the Secret Service ultimately is protecting is not the human being in the center of that box. What they're protecting is America's voice. 
It's America's choice. We chose that presidential candidate to be our commander-in-chief for the next four years. Think about that. There is no position in the, any government position throughout the United States of America or in our history that has more power, authority, and responsibility than our president, which is why we give that person a four-year term, 1,461 days, 8,000 working hours, to carry out America's agenda. And the Secret Service protects the choice that we made. From there, if that job truly doesn't look like it doesn't kill you on the job. It can look like it does. This is, again, part of the reason the president's age so significantly. Yet, so too with the Secret Service agents as well. Being married, trying to have a life is nearly impossible when you are following the president of the United States around. And even within the age, within the core group of agents who protect the president, even fewer of them are, quote unquote, have the ability or have the license to drive the beast, to drive that 16,000 pound bulletproof armored limousine to the point that while we don't know specifically how well they're trained and to what extent they're trained, as we should not be able to know, it should not be common knowledge, I have confirmed by more than one person throughout the years of studying the American presidency that part of their final exam of being able to drive that presidential limousine with the president on board is that they have to drive that limousine at a very high rate of speed for X amount of hundreds or thousands of feet. And they have to go around a series of orange cones. While that you may roll your eyes and say, well, I don't think that would be that hard to do. Number one, I'd be willing to bet none of my listeners have ever driven a car as small as a Cadillac limousine, yet is heavier than even some of the largest vehicles on our road. The way that car wants to pull and taut and push with the momentum as it's going around uh, curves at high rates of speed, the Secret Service agents to pass their final exam has to do this around a series of orange cones, and they have to do it backwards. They are driving in reverse, and while they're doing this, one of the two side mirrors will be shot out from them, where they have to make it to the end without hearing, hitting one cone, but being able to navigate that road as they travel it in reverse. It's just the reason why, as much as we laud our presidents, we also should always acknowledge and thank Secret Service officers for the lives that they are truly giving up in order to protect the president. So with that, we then look at the Congress, the largest branch of government that is also considered in some cases the strongest branch. The reason being is because think about how much the president wants to do, accomplish in his or eventually her four years or eight years in office, very little can be done if the president doesn't have Congress on board. And if you don't believe me, just look at the latest feelings of frustration, and in some cases, outright bursts of anger of President Joe Biden when he cannot get his Build Back Better program to take place, to launch the way he's hoping it would. All of these obstacles are working against him. It's not because of the people in the White House or the people his cabinet. It's the 435 members of the House and the 100 members of the Senate that say, hey, Mr. President, I'm willing to work with you. 
but I have my own constituents back in my home district that I have to report to. And representatives, as we know, they are in perpetual cycles of re-election because they only have two years. By the time that election is held in November, and they take that oath of office on January 3rd of the following year, they are running for re-election in less than 24 months. 22 months from that date, thereabouts, they are up once again. Our senators have the luxury of not having to worry about re-election for almost a half a decade in between their terms, as they have, of course, a six-year term. Yet each body, the Senate and the House of Representatives, holds powers and responsibilities that can make a president one of the top 10 and also throw an albatross around his neck and make him one of the bottom 10. Yes, as much as important as the United States cabinet is to an American president, the cabinet are staffed by secretaries, as we know, Secretary of the Treasury, Secretary of Homeland Security, etc. These are experts in their field with long, impressive CVs or resumes that have the ability to carry out the president's agenda. Yet, as important as those positions are, because if those secretaries make any mistakes, that's on the secretary. If they have any successes, that belongs to the president. The secretaries of our cabinets also have very thankless, unforgiving jobs. And yet, despite the fact and understanding why the president of the United States would want people that he can trust around him, he doesn't just get to say, to name somebody and have them suddenly one of the members of the cabinet. They need to receive the backing, the approval of a majority of the American Senate. And if the president is of one party and the Senate is controlled by a majority in a different party, good luck with the president trying to get one of his cronies there that he knows will be loyal and faithful to him, which is the reason why sometimes cabinet positions can be vacant for a long period of time. And that's unsettling in terms of the money that needs to be spent to get things done. The president has his own budget for certain select activities, but Build Back Better, a program of that size in the trillions of dollars, that's the House of Representatives that's going to give the ultimate thumbs up or thumbs down on that because they control the purse. And the power of the purse is arguably one of the greatest and most sought after responsibilities by any politician is the the person that holds the checkbook. And that's our House of Representatives. The founding fathers were smart enough to know that the ultimate body of politicians that has the ability to spend American dollars better be keeping their stethoscope to American will more than any other politician, which is the reason, again, our representatives have a two-year term, president four years, Senate six years with staggered terms in, in that, for that reason. So that, again, just an idea of just how powerful Congress really is and should be, as they are responsible also to the American people. In terms of warfare, notice that when the President of the United States wants to go to war, he needs to get the approval of the House of Representatives. Why? Because the war funding comes from that branch comes from that house, that body of legislators. He conducts the war as commander-in-chief as he sees fit. Notice that to end the conflict isn't just going on TV to the American people saying, okay, this war is now over. Here's a peace treaty that my advisors drew up that the former enemies signed. That means nothing. 
because the president doesn't have the power to do that. To end that conflict, he has to back over to the United States Senate. So same House, same uh, branch, Congress, but now he needs to go to the opposite body, the Senate, to approve foreign treaties. And I'd be willing to bet that almost every one of my listeners, especially American listeners, probably knew all of this, but maybe you never thought of it in that brief overview that literally for something as important as war, mind you, for our almost 250 years of existence, we have not been using our military for only 19 years out of that massive span that we've been in existence. Yet the president doesn't declare war, the House does, president doesn't end the war, the Senate does, because those are more people that are responsible to, with their agendas, to the American people, the voters. Now, I know some of you may criticize and say, wait a minute, Vietnam? I don't see any record as, as uh, the House of Representatives approving that. The war on terror, the Persian Gulf War? No, because what the founding fathers didn't anticipate is that there would be military international organizations, that the president can also execute military conflict without necessarily using 100% of American troops. We can go under the guise of the United Nations. We can go under the guise of NATO. There are other areas. And let's face it, the last time an American president stood before the House of Representatives to ask for a declaration of war was on December 8, 1941, a day after Pearl Harbor was attacked by the Japanese, launching us into World War II, as we know. Since then, the president largely hasn't sought House of Representatives approval. And ready for this? The House of Representatives isn't all that eager to get him back either. Why? Because more often than not, wars tend to be unpopular. How could they not be? It's a decimation of life. And for those that survive, often come back with physical disabilities that they'll have for life. And even those that come back that physically look in a perfect state of health, we now know can experience different phases, different levels of PTSD that can haunt them for the rest of their lives. No, Congress would rather not be on record as having said, yep, we told the president, get those men and women and send them off to country B so that we can fight for our agenda there. No, the president's not asking and hasn't been in the last several decades. And the Congress largely isn't complaining. That's up to us if we want to reverse that, though. It doesn't have to remain that way. All we need to do is to write our Congress people, to write the president, to listen to their campaign promises and return to what the founding fathers wanted. Mr. President, or eventually Madam President, you're going to commit men and women, American men and women, to an overseas conflict? Then you better keep it, get the approval of 435 members who are also responsible to the American people because it is their constituents' children or spouses or they themselves that are going to be going off to this foreign entanglement. Moving ahead to one of the areas of the federal government that oftentimes received short shrift, and I'm not saying that they shouldn't for in some cases, is the bureaucracy, better known in some cases as the people that lay out all the red tape. The bureaucracy is a group that numbers, of course, into the many, many thousands within the federal government, as well as our state and local governments, that are indirectly affected by elections. And as a result, 
throughout American history, they could oftentimes be staffed with inefficient staff because bureaucracies were the were the go-to positions that incoming presidents would thank their supporters by appointing them into positions that do not require Senate approval, point them into positions that in some cases they truly were not qualified for. The first president to egregiously do this on record was none other than Andrew Jackson, our, number, our seventh president. And is it a criticism of him? Yes, but I also can somewhat understand where he was coming from, because by the time number seven walks into the Oval Office, the first time a true commoner is elected president of the United States, Jackson didn't trust almost everybody in the bureaucracy because they had been loyal to the past six presidents who have all been either founding fathers or with Jackson's immediate predecessor, John Quincy Adams, was the son of a former president. So no, if the bureaucracy was loyal to them, Jackson himself didn't just didn't trust him. So he rid the bureaucracy of those holdovers and put in a lot of people that were faithful to him. However, many that were not qualified for the jobs they were in, beginning to give the American bureaucracy a negative reputation, which many Americans still hold that same opinion today. But please note that without the bureaucracy, America would grind to a halt. Think about it. If the bureaucracy went out with every elected politician who was elected out of office, and all of those offices were vacant and new people would have to come in, consider the learning curve that we would have to grant these people every time a new politician came into office. We would barely be able to get anything done before that politician, their boss, would be up for election again. And that's the reason I, the first point that I stressed is so important. They are indirectly affected by state, local, or national elections. By the 1870s, however, there would be the push for jobs that would be based on merit, not on politics, and certainly not on political connections. This was the reason for the launching of what became known as the Pendleton Civil Services Act. It created the Civil Services Commission, which banned job appointments from current federal employees simply because of who you knew or who you went on record as voting for. The Civil Services Commission created a type of test that applicants for the various positions from the post office all the way through to other government position, government offices that would have to pass a test known as the civil service exam. To give you an idea how important that exam is, I encourage you, when you're done with this podcast, to go to federaljobs.gov or fedjobs.gov and look up various positions that are, uh, that are offered right now by the FBI, CIA, or anywhere in Homeland Security. Treasury, the post office, you name it. Notice that in order to apply for those jobs, you will have to take the civil service exam, but you will also have to participate and complete what's known as the KSA forms. KSA is short for K knowledge, S skills, and A ability. And what this does is it takes you, the candidate, and keeps your gender your ethnicity, your religion, everything is absent on these forms. All that's coming out 
is what you know, the skills that you have, and what your abilities are when you're applying to various positions so that the candidates that are ultimately chosen are chosen not only because of not who they know, not who they have connections with, they're not even chosen because of their gender, again, religion, or ethnicity. None of that works for the candidates, but more importantly, none of it works against the candidate. So clearly a lot of reforms were done. It's not that we still don't have weaknesses in the system, but in the 21st century, it is far better than where it was back in the 1800s. With federal regulation as, as well coming out of this would be the Interstate Commerce Act start, formed in 1887 that outlawed price fixing and also established the Interstate Commerce Commission, which also sought different forms of collusion between business owners of large businesses who might get together to try to keep the prices of their commodities artificially high. Also to come out of this would have been, would be known what's, what became known is the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. Initially, this is what the Sherman Antitrust Act is what makes monopoly only legal when you're playing it on a game board with fake money. But anybody that attempts to take the idea of the game of monopoly and try to do that within their own businesses in real life are going to find out that the feds are going to be on their rear ends because in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. You might roll your eyes when I said the year 1890 and think, yeah, but that's, that's one on the old books. How effective is that? Initially, both laws were relatively weak. Remember, listeners, that laws mean nothing that are passed by Congress or even the president if the executive branch doesn't enforce them. The laws mean nothing. Our speed limits why bother obeying that black and white sign of 25 miles an hour or 35 miles an hour? We do it because we know, depending upon the area you're in, that there's the potential that a police officer will be in a squad car or one of those darn radar boxes is going to nail you and take a picture of your license plate, which will conveniently generate a ticket that you will find in the comfort of your own mailbox X amount of days later. If there weren't repercussions, we would not obey the law. And that's the reason why, again, initially both laws were weak. However, considering that these two acts in federal regulation, the Interstate Commerce Act and the Sherman Antitrust Act, clearly were going after the conglomerates in corporate America. In the 1890s, under the presidency of Grover Cleveland and William McKinley, neither one of these presidents, by and large, put any teeth to these acts. Ironically, it would become a businessman himself who was trying to be shunned out of politics because he had such a loud voice, truly, for the underprivileged in America that to shut him up, they took him out of the governor's office of the state of New York and threw him into the vice presidency with million, William McKinley. That man, by the name of Theodore Roosevelt, whose big business enterprises himself, would be the one, ironically enough, that would spearhead the Interstate Commerce Act and the Sherman Antitrust Act and give it the teeth that it needed to break up monopolies and price fixing in America that was only hurting the middle and lower classes. And again, if you rolled your eyes thinking that that was decades ago, what does that affect? How does that affect us now? Well, then I just encourage you to Google Bill Gates 
and then put in the Sherman Antitrust Act, because not only was he nailed by it, he ultimately lost in the Federal Court of Appeals. So that brings us to an end of this discussion on the American presidency, the bureaucracy, Congress, as well as the different reforms with federal regulation. In our next podcast discussion, I'm now going to be pulling us out of Washington, D.C. to find out from discussing what was going on there, to find out how John and Jane Q. Public were surviving, what their lives were like as America was becoming more and more industrialized. And just to say, just so you cannot say I didn't warn you, when you listen to the next podcast, I don't encourage you to listen to it while you're eating or right after you've had breakfast, lunch, or dinner. This may be a podcast you want to listen to while you're working out so that you can get the anger and aggression that you're liable to feel because of the real events that took place in our own United States of America. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have or book recommendations as well. And if you like what we discussed today, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again. Have a great day.